We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I think the main thing I learned is that if people perceive value in what you're doing, and not even necessarily the end product or what you're doing for them, but if they perceive value in the service that you're providing, they, they will wait. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Slow down and have coffee are some great words to live by, especially if you love coffee as much as Nigel Price, the owner and creative force behind one of the most exciting coffee operations in America, Drip Coffee Makers. On this very exciting episode, I catch up with one of the coolest guys in coffee. We talk about why Nigel loves pour-over coffee so much and some of the big problems with espresso. Yes, Nigel has many takes about espresso. We also talk about how New Yorkers are embracing his very unique style of service. I'm a huge fan of Nigel's work and was so happy he stopped by. Nigel Price, welcome to the Taste Podcast. I'm glad you have me. This is amazing. Thanks. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm, we've, we've talked a while, and I interviewed you for the Monday interview a couple years ago. Yeah. And um, you're a cool guy. You are an incredible coffee professional, and we're going to talk about that. Appreciate that. I'm trying anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're beyond trying. Let me let me ask you from the jump. What what, what have you what what coffees have you had today? Let's let's go over. It's a we're recording this at around noon, um, midweek. What have you had? Today I had a started day with a Mexican uh, natural that was roasted by black and white roasters yeah. in North Carolina. Definitely. They're, they're kind of like our anchor roaster. I mean, as you know, we are multi-roaster. And um, I was almost late because I was going to brew another cup to yeah. take with me because it was just so good. I mean, it's... Uh, I love what I do. Yeah. <laughs> you and so that you've had one cup of of drip coffee today. Just one, yeah. No espresso. <laughs> no espresso. Very telling. We'll get to that. <laughs> I love I'll share mine. I had some yes please. I, I took the bus early so I, I had an early at a V60 uh a yes please blend. Wow. Okay. Um at home. So I home brewed that. Um which I love. I love yes please. Those guys yeah, they're out doing, in LA. They're doing good work, yeah. Definitely. Shout out to Tonks and Sumi. Those guys are great. And then I came to the city and I went to Irving Farm. Um they have a little cafe near us and decent. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. They they do the job. Gets the job done. Um we were just talking off mic about the the lack of of real multi-roaster uh, cafes in Midtown where we're recording. Do you want to just explain what drip is drip coffee makers. I want to call it its property right, because right. I love that. <laughs> no, it's cool because like coffee makers is like great. So what is a multi-roaster coffee maker? What do you do? Primarily is sourcing or curating maybe too complicated of a term for it. But it's um, like putting together roasters from literally around the world that we love. Um, and I say we because I do this in conjunction with a lot of the baristas that we hire. I mean um, – some of these guys can talk circles around me in terms of coffee, which is, um, I think, an important part of our concept as well. Because a lot of the people that work for us aren't just baristas. Uh, most of their 
I want to say most of the wrecks we get are from the other baristas. Um, so to answer your question, <laughs> um, it's pretty much curating um, an experience for guests who may not want to pay a ton of money in shipping to order coffee from one, two, or half a dozen different uh, roasters around the world. Um, they can come and pretty much grab anything off the shelf, and it's going to be good. Depends on how adventurous they are. Yeah. Um, and then the drip name is telling because yeah. you, you're a coffee bar and, and shop and store. You uh, sell espresso. You can get cortado. Great. But what does drip mean to you? Drip primarily is if put it this way, if I could have designed the shop the way I wanted to and I didn't need to make any money to pay rent, it would just be maybe a half a dozen of just pour over, um, like pour over funnels and we would just dial in a different coffee every day um, and really curate the experience per coffee, per guest. Um, that model is not, um, it's probably not the most profitable in terms yeah. of um, <laughs> making money, but um that's um, – I don't want to jump ahead too far, but pretty much the concept for Drip was based around the pour-over bar yeah. um, or the slow bar, as some people may call it. Um, and that is pretty much our focus. Financially, that may make up 10 percent of the business because, right. like you said, you cannot just sell – you're selling or, some cold brew. Yeah. You know, <laughs> a lot cold, of cold brew, a lot of cold lattes. And, yeah, yeah, oat lattes. <laughs> but let's get into what a drip coffee experience is, a hand brewing, you can call it, you can call it pour over. Right. Um, I've I've spoken a lot about it on the show, and if you've li- been listening to the Taste Podcast, you know I'm, I'm a big supporter of that style of coffee. But for you, Nigel, let's talk about what that does. What, what does a pour over do that maybe espresso and cold brew doesn't? You know, um, I'll go back to my first experience with a pour-over. Um, prior to that, I've had coffee, and often you'd pick up the bag, and it'll you'll, you'll read the tasting notes, and it'll say um, raspberries or chocolate or whatever. Bergamot. Exactly. Um, and I always thought that was fodder, and I, I thought it was more like a marketing thing. You know, it looks good on the bag. The first time I had a pour-over, that was like, properly dialed in, meaning someone developed a recipe for it, um, uh, it blew my mind. I think on the bag it said blueberries and it may have actually, no, maybe it's like citrus notes or something like Mm -hmm. that, but I could not believe that coffee could taste like that. And that was kind of the rabbit hole that I've been going down ever since. Um, yeah, I'm I'm still amazed. Even um if we go into the different ways that um coffee is being produced now in terms of um anaerobics and um natural processed coffees, um these roasters are killing it. I don't think they still fully understand what's happening with the coffee, but the <laughs> coffee they're producing is, is just amazing. It's pretty cool that you point that out because there's the process, which is done by the coffee company, the roaster. There's the agriculture, which is done by the farm with yes. places like Guatemala and Ethiopia. And then there's the end, which is you, the multi-roaster at Cafe, who's actually manipulating and dialing. I want to talk to you about dialing because that's a kind of jargony term that baristas use, but it's super, super important. Explain what you're doing when you say you're dialing a pour over for that day. Like for tomorrow, Thursday, you'll be dialing coffees at your four locations in New York City. What will you be doing? Right. I think um, what a lot of people don't realize is specifically people who drink um, 
coffee more of a passive um, approach is that coffee is a um, it's a living thing. I mean, it literally it changes within a day or two. The profiles can change, which is why you have to quote unquote dial it in or develop a recipe for it. Um, it's Basically, the same way a chef would add a little extra salt to a meal just mm-hmm. to kind of punch up the flavors. It's um, It could be as something as simple as adjusting the grind on yeah. for the beans or the, the temperature of the water, the amount of beans you use per cup. Um, these things seem, would, if you watch a barista, it would almost seem like second nature to watch them make a cup of coffee, but it takes years to perfect, um, to be able to... Similar to espresso, but to be able to um, diagnose what right. <laughs> what the coffee needs in terms of um, those things to dial it in to get a good recipe in real time. So on in that real day, time. exactly. Given the you know the the humidity, given the, how long ago it was roasted, exactly. You know, and then let's talk a little bit about the actual cupping of coffees because I feel you do that as well, which is how you buy coffees, which is different from yeah. dialing. You're, when you're 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 getting pitched coffees all the time. What's, what does that mean? You know, um, <laughs> which is uh, it probably it makes it a lot easier to choose coffees now because yeah. we have a lot of roasters who just like send us stuff. Yeah. Um, we dedicate at least at least one day a week to kind of just um, see what we got. Um, and like I said, the baristas will almost always kind of bring what they quote unquote think are their, their favorites in terms of developing a pour over menu for each of the shops. And um it's I, I would love to say it's um, extremely scientific, uh, well thought out um, plan, but it's really just brewing coffee and then we just all kind of sit around and taste it because you just, I mean it's you're not gonna dial it in. Everybody has like a set uh, recipe or starting point for when you make a pour over coffee, even if you're making your coffee at home. you have a starting point and yeah. you'll taste it and say, oh next time maybe I'll tighten up the grinds a bit or. The water was extraction time. Extraction time, like the water doesn't need to be that hot. Yeah. Um, I would love to uh, to say we have like this um, <laughs> a set process in which we do this, but it's kind of just a more ad hoc um, approach to Listen, it. Listen, Nigel, that's why I like coffee. That's why, as a food person, as someone who writes cookbooks, I connect with coffee so much because of that. Because if you're talking about recipe development. There's no science when yeah. looking at a bunch of different s- styles of cookie if you're doing like a cookie recipe or if you're sitting in a restaurant and you're part of your, a, a culinary team and you're talking about um, a, a salad dressing. You know, there's no, no. math <laughs> there really. I mean it's about let's it's about taste and flavor. I spent years in coffee trying to figure yeah. out why I didn't have <laughs> the palate this person had or why I didn't see what they saw. And I just come to realize that, oh, maybe they're just – baking it or maybe they're just (laughs) I'm almost certain the individuals that I respect in coffee will never give you like a concrete this is how it should taste or this is how you should approach it and um, I just adopted that style. I love um, it. And there's so many people who will, will have certainty in coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's go back. Uh, speaking of your past, I, I, you weren't always working in coffee. I'd love to hear about your, your, you know, where you work professionally and then this 10-year period of working yeah. in coffee that has led you to open Drip Coffee Makers. Well, um, I'll go even further back. Than Great. That. I mean um, – I would love to say I had a career path, but when I was younger, we're talking like high school, going into college, my mindset was I just need to make money. I, I probably just threw a dart at a board and said, 
what is going to pay me the most. You right. Know? You grew and up in New York City. Grew up in New York City. Yeah. Um, I actually like in borderline Queens, Long Island, and but I always worked in Manhattan. Or, you know, went to university in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it took so long for me to get. I mean, I live in Brooklyn now, but I should have moved closer to Manhattan a long, long time ago. Yeah. But um, that said, I um, so studied economics. Um, went to the last place I landed. I was at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase for about six, seven years. But even halfway through, I I knew that um, finance wasn't going to be my mm. end all be all. And this is me in my mid twenties, um, early thirties. I just kind of. Um, I would look around at the guys that I worked with and just hmm. did not want to be that when I was 45, hmm. 50 years old. And what was the, what was the characteristic? Were they just like un, uninspired? Were they stressed? Uninspired. Literally every quarter, everybody was kind of worried if they had a job or not. Um, I, we worked at <laughs> – this is hmm. a pretty um, ridiculous title, but it was <laughs> I was the global – Credit research analyst assistant. <laughs> they actually wrote that on a card, <laughs> and um, but basically it was maybe like a dozen of us um, younger uh, kids. We would get there at five thirty six in the morning and do the research for the actual analyst who would stroll in at like nine nine thirty, and then walk our research across the street to the like equities and just. <laughs> say this is what I pitch think it presented. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a interesting job, I, I'd say the least. <laughs> but I mean, um, and initially, I loved it because you know you made a pretty decent amount of money for somebody in their their twenties. But um, I just think once you get to a certain place where you kind of buy the things you want to buy and you go to place you want to go, it's just um, mm-hmm. it's not fulfilling. And and another surprising tale is I didn't really even drink a ton of coffee back then. I just I couldn't even understand why people drank it. It just um, right. but I was never exposed to good coffee. I don't even think the term specialty coffee was a thing back then. I mean, they were still talking about coffee in terms of waves. And, in terms you know, of the main the lexicon, I mean, I think like uh, Intelligentsia in '97 when they right, launched, yeah. and Blue Bottle later, and those guys were doing it. But yeah, it wasn't yeah. part of our lexicon. Yeah. Definitely not. But um, but I did love cafes and I loved cafe culture and um. You know, I kind of was already thinking in terms of I will probably move in that direction if I ever had a career change. Cafes. Cafes, like, yeah. Like the hospitality industry. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I kind of uh, I got my wish when around 2007, 2008, when the mortgage-backed securities thing was happening. Mm. And um, we were training people in Mumbai, India to basically do our job. We had a team of maybe, I don't know, 30 people. But the salaries for those 30 people could basically sustain an entire, like, office building in Mumbai, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, makes business sense. But anyway, um, I was given the opportunity to either move to another department or, you know, they gave me a couple of dollars and it was like, you know, you can just leave, you know, severance package. And um, I chose a severance. But I was working on a business plan for about two years prior to that. Interesting. So yeah. <laughs> you, you business plan to open a cafe, but you weren't into coffee per se. You just like the hospitality nope. industry. Wasn't into coffee. It was, yeah. and it was. I probably would would have leaned more towards tea. Yeah, as, that's right. And coffee would be more of a um, <laughs> uh, a necessity because um, people just didn't think it made sense to open like a shop that focused on tea. Which, in hindsight, they were absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, tea is always going to be in the margins. It's wonderful <laughs> beverage, great to talk yeah. about. But in terms of at least in North America, it's not as, yeah. not as popular. But, and um, 
but once I started working in shops, and I naively thought, you know, I'd work in a shop. I work in a coffee shop for about a couple of months and then hmm. open my own yeah, shop. Yeah, of course. It just, was that easy. Yeah. Huh. Just, you know, I was more concerned with the record play I was going to buy. So for the vinyl I'm going to listen to in the cafe and the equipment or the coffee itself. Yeah. Um, and I quickly learned that that was <laughs> the, the, the fantasy I had going on just was not um, reality. And then I also had to cope with the fact that now – I'm making a fraction of what I made financially. So it's yeah. trying to sustain this lifestyle that I had. And did I want to even sustain a lifestyle? So it ended up me scaling back a lot. And um, yeah, a lot happened during that time. <laughs> so you started taking jobs at uh, cafes and learning yes. the ropes. And you went in seemingly to like learn how to like set up a shop. But then you clearly fell in love with coffee yeah. at some point. What kind of places were you working at? And like what were these awakenings about coffee? It was a play. I think they're still around, actually. Um, and I, I'm almost certain he hired me because he also worked at J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, and his brother, I believe, worked for Salma Smith Barney, um, a shop, uh, Cafe 1668. I think they have two locations now. Yeah. Um, that was the first time I worked in a shop with an actual coffee professional. Um, and not the owners, the, the, the baristas that worked there. And um, these guys really opened my mind in terms of profiles and flavor notes and even the equipment that they were brewing on. It really just kind of blew my mind to the point where I probably got fired from that job because I just could not um, contain my excitement in terms of, like, you know, your priorities should have been dealing with customers. Wait, but you were fired? Yeah. I was either, you were canned? I was, wow. I, I was totally, I would spend all my time just brewing coffee and yeah. trying different coffees and, you know, neglecting customer service. <laughs> That's so funny. Were they roasting their own or were they outsourcing? They were definitely outsourcing. Yeah. I think they played with the idea of roasting, yeah. but um, that quickly dissipated. Who were they um, buying from that at that point? It's a company called Plowsh- Plowshare, okay. which um, I, I actually think they actually have a standalone shop now too. Yeah. But um, they were supplying for them and um, uh, Joe, Joe yeah. Coffee. Before they started roasting their own. Absolute legends in the game, Joe Coffee. Yeah. When will the pro shop come back? I don't think it's coming back. I don't either. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, not to disclose too much information, but I, I know some people who know some people. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> it was such a treasure, and it was one of those multi roaster cafes yeah. that we were talking about yeah. before they started roasting their own, where you could go in, roll in, and buy um, coffees from around the globe yeah. on this beautiful shelf. And talk to people who knew exactly what they were yeah. doing, it, which, I mean, it's a little more familiar now, but back then it was non-existent. So let's fast forward to the to the point where you realize that, you know, drip is a thing. And, and how did you open? Because you didn't open with the traditional brick and mortar. You had a different model. Yeah. You did. It's cool. Um, yeah, I spent maybe eight or nine years uh, <laughs> making my rounds around That's the city. That's Sorry, that, not <laughs> yeah. to understate that. That yeah. is a long time. You went in thinking three months. You came out nine years. Yeah. And you, went, you worked at some cool spots. Yeah, and and ironically, even to this day, I still feel like um, I don't know what I'm doing still. Yeah. You know, I think it's just so many variables. I mean, um, I may know a little more than the the novice, but I still feel like, you know, there's still a lot to learn. But... We started with, uh, I wanted to do like a coffee cart and do yeah. like pop-ups. It's not a super high in, um, high investment uh, risk, risk-wise. And I was still in a state where I didn't know if this concept was even going to work. Um, 
would people hang around for pour overs? Um, the only good, one benefit of going to school for finance and like economics and things like that is that I learned a little bit about marketing and branding mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So um, I did realize that you it doesn't matter how great your product is, you have to get in front of people. You, have to you, you launched the gram pretty early. Yeah. I would imagine. <laughs> exactly. yeah. I would imagine you had the drip gram, which is a must yeah. follow. Great yeah. stuff there. <laughs> it's, um, it's one of those things that you just have to do. But back to my point, I, um, I still didn't know if the pour over model was going to work 100%. And I wanted to get in front of people and talk directly to people and make coffee while, you know, I'm looking directly at them and just really um, get a feel for if the ramp up for people waiting for their lattes in the early 90s, you know, people, it, it seems weird now, but that was a that was a pretty big deal that somebody's going to, one, mm-hmm. wait three or four minutes for a cup of coffee and then pay $4 for yeah. it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and the pop-ups we did, it got to a point where that, um, the spot in front of Brooklyn Museum, like as customers that I still talk to on, on a regular basis, we're like um, <laughs> the relationships that I developed just by making people coffee. You know, it's it really solidified the idea that this could. This Let me could ask work. you this: So you'd roll up to the Brooklyn Museum with this cart, and what were you selling? Were you doing only pour overs, or were there some? Was there some earned coffee? Initially, it was only pour over. Wow! And then um, because it was like in the middle of summer, we yeah. like eventually had like a little cold brew um, mm-hmm. pot. That, you know. Um, cold brew dispenser, but no, no urns. I, I was very adamant about um, no batch brew coffee. Yep. I know um, some would disagree, but I really don't believe you can dial in a whole batch of coffee consistently. You, you may, you know, you may trap lightning in a bottle a couple of times, but I just, it's about consistency. I agree. I, I just don't think that... Um, I don't want to sound like I'm a complete proponent because we do have batch brewers in all the shops, which ironically didn't happen until like a month before we were going to open because I was still on the fence if it was necessary. But also don't – I didn't want to exclude. That's the key yeah. because that's the the dance because you don't want to be the guy who gets the headline who says, you know, blank coffee roaster doesn't want you to put milk in your coffee. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that happened with, uh, I mean, Blue Bottle, it happened. It happened with some other guys. You need to be inclusive, but obviously you're not a huge fan of batch brewing, but you got to offer it. You got to offer it. And honestly, um, the batch brewing, especially at Bushwick, was a gateway. Yeah. Because we would batch brew like, you know, we had a standard Colombian coffee. But then on occasion I would like batch brew some coffee that was, um, I didn't think, was good enough to get on the pour over menu, but was still pretty, pretty good. Mm-hmm. And if we had a lot of it, I would make batches of it. And it was a gateway for a lot of people who came in and thought they knew what coffee was. I mean, that's pretty much how like I got into it, you know, just tasting something different. Let um, me ask you about when back at the museum days when you're just doing the cart, when you were you said you, you, you were trying to find out what your c- customers wanted. What were you learning when you were, when you were serving these coffees one at a time? I think, The main thing I learned is that if people perceive value in what you're doing, and not even necessarily the end product or what you're doing for them, but if they perceive value in the service that you're providing, they they will wait. Um, I think um, a lot of people initially stop just out of curiosity, but um, 
I, like I said, I still have a lot of um, customers from those, like I call them my OGs. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have customers from, you know, that, you know, still reach out to me now talking about that cup of coffee that they had on the corner on in the summer. We, we play with the idea of doing it, you know, like doing some pop-ups there, but I, I think now it's a little, might be a little saturated over there. <laughs> yeah. Do you do any catering at all? Do you ever like roll into events? Cause like, where am I going to find this cart? Cause I've actually yeah. personally never only been in your shops. I've never seen the cart out. I'm going to get, I'm going to be more vocal about it. I mean, I love we, it. we do do a lot of pop-ups, but it's, it's almost always kind of the day of, I'll like take a picture on Instagram <laughs> and be like, Oh, we're here. But I do want to make that more of an, um, more of a focal point of the brand because it was the origins of it. Um, a good friend of mine, um, he took some pictures that we're going to actually use when we finally get a website up and going mm-hmm. um, because I do want to tell that story, that side of the story. I think that's lost on a lot of folks who just found Drip. Um, but if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So now, <laughs> this day, right now, you have four locations, Soho, Williamsburg, Bushwick, and um, Brooklyn Heights, yeah. which is dear, yeah. near and dear to me. That's in the Clark Street <laughs> subway station up in Brooklyn Heights right that's by the where, promenade. That's where we met. We met there. I, I yeah. rolled in. I had a bunch of coffees. <laughs> I used to live in Carroll Gardens not far. Um, and then we did that interview. But, man, uh, it's in a subway station. Tough yeah. spot to open a shop. Tough spot. Tough spot. But I even before I was into coffee, I just I never comprehended why someone just didn't open it's just so a regular coffee shop there. I mean, definitely. I, I mean, you you may or may not know this, but that spot went through so many iterations. I mean, before us, I think right before us was like a guy making Cuban sandwiches. Mm. Yeah. Me personally, I don't know if I would eat that kind of yeah. <laughs> food out of in a train station, but um, I was like, just sell coffee, you know. Um, it's doing well? It's doing well now. Um, yeah. Went through a lot of changes in that spot. But it's... Um, yeah. I know you're not supposed to pick favorites, <laughs> but um, that's probably my favorite. Spot. No way outside of Bushwick from the original. I I love Bushwick for what it was and yeah. what it what it spawned, but um, that spot is just I think it's just so indicative of something that you would find in New York. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Only in New York. I mean, oh, yeah. the Clark Street <laughs> Station is a one of a kind station. It's got that yeah that yeah. boats art uh, you know architecture above it, and it's got this. Amazing. Incredible neighborhood vibe in Brooklyn Heights is its yeah. own community. Yeah, I, I mean that was our first expansion after Bushwick, and I was I was kind of nervous about the spot, but then as soon as we got there, it was just the trail end of COVID. Then they closed the train station for like almost eight nine months. Oh my gosh, that. So um, oh. I mean, I knew going in it was going to be a slow ramp up, so I kind of yeah you know, prepared for that. But um, but now it's it's like I can't keep up over there. I love that. love to hear that. It's the one I always go back to. Okay. For our listeners, I'd like to like walk us into one of your locations because I want to paint the picture of what you're, what you're doing there between you've got your espresso, your drip, and then you've got your shelf. Take us through what's, what's happening when you walk up to a drip, because it's honestly very unique. And it, to me, it speaks to me in such a great way. It's, um, (laughs) if you bought a book, and I've I bought a couple that's like how to open a coffee shop. Yeah, they literally all have a similar layout. They'll tell you where to put the menus, uh, you know, the flow, um, and it's designed basically to get customers in and out as quickly as possible. The pour over bar is prominent. That's 
probably the first thing you see when you walk through the doors in any of the shops because I want you I want folks to know that this is not one is not a typical coffee shop and we're not just here for the act of commerce. This is kind of um your spot. This yeah. is a, especially at Bushwick. I mean, um, some people literally took I mean took that very literal. Mm-hmm. Like it's definitely like the neighborhood spot. Yeah. I intentionally don't have menus on the wall. Um, I didn't want it to be a, just a place of commerce. Uh, the only way to spark those conversations is to kind of engage. Um, yeah. If you want something, you can look the barista in the eye and just ask him for it. Um, and so far, it's it's working. And like you said, it is unique. And it's one of those things where it's in the beginning, you're like, is this going to work? Because you're like, literally doing the opposite of what you should be doing if you want a quote-unquote successful coffee shop. Yeah. And, um, You're breaking many rules. Yeah. You're <laughs> bottlenecking, which is pisses people off. But with, with the exception of Soho, which I feel like is a more kind of like people do want to kind of grab and go. But even there, I, I think it's hard to predict what people want, but I truly believe that most people don't want what everybody thinks they want. <laughs> um and they may not even know they want to not rush back to work. Mm-hmm. Maybe they need this two, three, four-minute conversation yeah. over this pour-over. And, I mean, there's no way to scientifically prove the ROI on, you know, <laughs> intentionally creating a bottleneck at a pour-over bar. But I truly believe that that's why we're still hanging around. And if you go to Asia and Europe, you know, the cafe experience is slower. Yeah. Intention- it's intentional. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of uh, American coffee stores are the opposite. Yeah. And I would never say, I actually on um, a few of the sandwich boards, specifically the one at Soho, that's like the slogan. Even on the web, the web page, the landing page we have, it's kind of slow down and have, have coffee. Yeah. Which Smart. is the antithesis of what, you know, the purpose of getting a cup of coffee is. And again, it goes back to, I f- feel like people have heard that term like oh i gotta grab my coffee and run but i don't i don't know i, I don't think most people want to grab the coffee and run definitely know? not and it's yeah. the coffee connoisseur is growing i have to say too it might sound a little precious in in our conversation but man your aesthetic is is rad like <laughs> matte black everywhere drip is a great logo the serif is there it's a serif font and it just has a, a real energy and vibe i think that really goes back to the brand that we created because yeah. <laughs> it's almost embarrassing to say now, but the lo- actual logo was supposed to be like a placeholder. Like I, hmm. I just picked that font and I was going to send it to like a graphic designer and say, I want the logo to look like, look and feel like this. And um, I just never got it to the graphic designer. And then when we had the cart made, I sent it to the guy to put on the cart. And then once it was there, it was like, yeah, now I have to own it. And yeah. But like you said, it, I don't know. It just it just works. Yeah, it's uh, a really nice font. Yeah. Um, okay, back to the taking us through the, the what a drip situation, what what a drip location looks like. You've got your espresso machine. We'll get to that because right. I have a question about that. But then you've got your shelf, and I think that's yeah. really important to note. Dayglow in LA is another place that does this really well. Yeah. You've got the shelf, and it's not your product. You're not roasting coffee. To be clear, you no. you have no you know, probot in the back. You don't have like this like big roaster. And no manifesto. desire to do that at I'll, all. <laughs> and that's amazing. Personally, I love walking to multi-roasters because what's on that shelf right now? Let's talk, let's get into some of the coffees that you're selling 
when you're walking in, you're looking at all these different bags. They're different. Yeah. And they're different not because it's what we bought and what we have to sell. They're different because out of all the coffees that are currently available, we feel like these are the best that in the next couple of months that the world has to offer. Yeah. And um, as corny as that sounds, um, it was one of those things that, in my mind, I wish I had 10 or 15 years ago. Um, there's places in on the West Coast, I think, um, um, Barista, that's actually the name of the shop. Yeah. Uh, he, um, they did, I think he moved away from it um, a little bit, but um, I got inspiration from people like that that was, that was doing it back then. And um, I think I wanted to make the focal point of Drip a little more, a little less about the coffee shop and more about the coffee itself. Yeah. And um, which is why we kind of chose to, and it may have been a bit serendipitous as well. Um, I'm going to back up to the card again. When I used to reach out to roasters and I'll say, hey, you know, um, clearly I'm not going to buy, you know, 50 or 100 pounds of this stuff. I just want enough to get through a weekend or so. Mm-hmm. There were a few that were kind of like, I'm not going to sell you 12 bags of coffee or even less than that. And But there were a couple who were, like, very, like, excited about it. And immediately, you know, obviously, you know, I would go all over social media and say, this is what we're doing. This is where we are. And eventually it got to a point where people would call us and say, hey, you know, I'd like to send you some coffee if you, you know, if you're looking for a roaster for it's the next time you do a pop-up. A great point because it, there is some cachet getting on the shelf at a drip. Yeah. You, you <laughs> talked about black and white. I've seen East One there. I've seen um, I've seen Fritz from Korea, which yeah. which we, we've talked about off mic. I love those guys. I've seen those guys, Brady Wine. Brand, yeah, Brandywine. Brandywine. Um, Brandywine's dope, man. Maryland, <laughs> right? Uh, Delaware. Delaware. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Delaware. I, yeah. They're, um, and again, they're, they're another roaster that found us. Yep. You know, um, then once we had them on the shelf, then people are like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard. I'm, but, and that's another thing. I'm so amazed how initially I thought it was like a niche thing for people who are really into coffee. But the the umbrella, it's, it's, it's a really, it casts a wide net coffee. It really does. I'm surprised at how many people are really into like specialty coffee. Do you think it has something to do with the price point? The entry point is low for a luxury good because we're talking about luxury <laughs> goods here. This is luxury coffee yeah. when you're paying 18 to 23 to 50 even a bag. Still it's pretty low. It is low, but I, I do think the industry in, in general um, needs to do a better job of explaining that you know, people are getting these coffees at a bargain because yes. um, a lot of them really should cost a lot more in terms of, especially if you want to make sure that everybody's being treated fairly. A lot of people, you know, they, they have these elaborate um, write-ups on their webpage and they talk about how they're taking care of farmers and stuff like that. But hmm. there's very few uh, roasters who are very adamant about where they buy their coffee and making sure that the money's going back to the people who was actually producing it. And um, until people start shining, shining a light on that and making it make business sense, because unfortunately it does have to make business sense, I, you know. Um, yeah, I think the, the price of coffee, because some of our coffees, we 
on occasion have some bags that are like 50, 60 bucks. Yeah. Um, and even then, I don't have a problem. Like, people don't have a problem paying for it because they, even at 50 or 60 bucks, that's still a bargain for like a rare geisha that's probably only going to be available yeah. for a couple a of A cup weeks. of excellence yeah. rated yeah. geisha yeah. Uh, that sh- that's you're selling three ounces for 40 and it's, yeah. it's a bargain. <laughs> and just to echo conversations we've had on the show with Nicely Able, with Jeff Watts, with Akira Akudo. I'm just name dropping my friends in coffee, but they've all been on the show. <laughs> they all agree with me, which is like, and Nigel, you, that coffee is too cheap. Yeah. We need to pay more mm-hmm. for coffee for a lot of reasons, but it, it really goes back to where we're getting it. We're getting it from places very far away that many times have some human rights violations. Have There's there's issues within these regions. Yeah. And if you work with the right people who pay the right amount, you got to charge it back. And to add to add another layer of, complexity, you have a lot of coffee shops that are doing the bare minimum in terms of where they source their coffee. So the consumer doesn't, um, is is unable to distinguish between a drip and the bodega or the coffee shop on the corner in in their neighborhood. Um, The term specialty coffee is not something that's known to the average coffee consumer. So the industry has a bit of work to do in terms of educating. I once was at a coffee show and there was a, a gentleman who who sells cold brew and it's a namesake and I'm not going to say his name, but it's a namesake. And I asked him straight up if he'd ever been to a coffee farm, if he'd ever met a mm. coffee farmer. Um, and he said no. And this is somebody who sells a namesake product. Yeah. And when I asked him about some sourcing details and pretty basic things, he, he kind of didn't know what to say. Now, that seems common in coffee, yeah, unfortunately. Sadly. sadly. And if I was to, if I did start Drip three months after I left J.P. Morgan, I probably would have that same approach because it would just be numbers. Huh. Um, I, I didn't even take into, I didn't even take into uh, consideration the people that are going to be working for me because I just approached it from, I buy widgets at X, I sell them at, why? Yeah. And my profit margin. And that was pretty much it. And I think anybody who approaches, who gets into this industry, or any industry really, and if your bottom line is the only thing you're concerned with, then you could care less. Like, why would I go to a farm? I just want to buy these beans for as cheaply as I can yeah. buy them and sell them for as well, much as I can It's literally commodity coffee. Yeah. They sell it by the exactly. weight on, exactly. a, on, a, on a market that's based in London, yeah. and there's no tasting of the coffee. It's Not commodity yeah. coffee. It's like commodity anything. Let's go to the espresso machine. So that's the third element of your cafe, yeah. and I think that's a very interesting topic. Um you make money from espresso. We love espresso. You know, who doesn't love a cortado or latte, flat white, yeah. iced yeah. oat? <laughs> but if you talk to coffee professionals, many don't love it because you're doing some things. One is you're just kind of taking the flavor profiles, the beauty out of the coffee and making it into something that's very kind of uniform. Nigel, I have to ask you, what do you think about espresso? I think espresso is gross. No, I'm just kidding. Ah, <laughs> but, that's funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. Just I'll cut out the just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, anyone who drinks a cup of espresso and was like, oh, my God, this is delicious, is either deluding themselves or they're, you know, they're trying to get one over on you because I don't think anybody drinks espresso because it's delicious. Facts. I don't care Facts. how, like, how 
skilled you are on the bar at pulling shots, um, even some of the single origin coffees, because we almost always have a guest espresso. I mean, they're exciting. Like right now we have um, an espresso blend that's actually cut with a cinnamon process, um, perfect for like the holidays. And um, it's like a hint of cinnamon. And even that on its own, just as a shot of espresso, is still not the greatest. No. Which is why... Um, Milk drinks are such a big, you know, yeah. a big draw. You cut it with something, and and right. I think if you have a nice crema on a shot, and you really want a fast coffee experience, yeah. there's better. I mean, you you know when it's bad. Yeah. You're <laughs> at like literally at the Starbucks cafe in your hotel lobby, and you're getting a shot there. Oof. Rough. Uh, you're braver than I. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even attempt. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's got a, but you make money from espresso. Yeah, that's drinks. um, full disclosure, probably like 85 percent of the business is the espresso machine. I mean, um, I love the fact that people can come and get a pour over. And I love the fact that our numbers have gone, gone up dramatically over the past couple of years um, to the point where that's most people, that's their regular drink now. They'll come in and look at the list and pick something and say, you know, I'm going to have a pour over. Like that almost became like a common part of the coffee experience for a lot of folks who made me a couple of years ago, probably not. Um, but that said, I, that is kind of why we do put an emphasis on having the best espresso machine you can buy, um, keeping it tuned so that it is running because it is, it is unfortunately the, the, the crux of the business. <laughs> yeah, and you got to make sure that your baristas know what they're doing, but there's wonderful baristas all, always available, yeah. it seems. Yeah, it's, um, we've been really lucky with that. Um, I don't think I've put out one help wanted ad. No. Um, everybody, they just kind of, they'll reach out and they're like, hey, I worked at this place. I would love to work for Drip. Well, it's a credit to you. I mean, your reputation in the industry is, is extremely strong as a great boss and also somebody who sell, knows what you're talking about and has sells great coffee. There's like yeah. a combination there. So, Nigel... Credit to you. I, I've I've talked to many in the industry, and we all admire you. So appreciate that. I think yeah. I just had a lot of really crappy bosses, so yeah. I just do the opposite. <laughs> I love love to hear that. Um, can we shout out a few more coffees that you like companies that you that you like that maybe are are going to be on your shelves? Who do we have now? Um, Brandywine, um, Barn is coming. What's that? Barn. Um, Barn. They roast in um, Berlin. Yeah, German roaster. They may have one other shop in the city that carries them, but um, I don't know if they do pour overs. Um, Fritz is on is on the way. Yeah, finally. Uh, who else is? It? So you are getting some some coffee from overseas. <clears throat> yeah, some yeah. some overseas stuff. I I slowed down a bit um, only because a part of me felt a little guilty about um, ordering these coffees and having them shipped across the world when you know it's a. Uh, a company called uh, Resident. They roast uh, in Gainesville, Florida, which seems so weird to me, but um, amazing coffee. Um, there's a lot of um, roasters right here. Um, methodical, South Carolina. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I think I, I need to place an order for them. As yeah, well, Methodical's but, great. I've yeah. had their coffees. But there's so many, like, amazing roasters here. But oftentimes I'll get samples from places, and I'm like, okay, I got to have that. So... Camber, you ever mess with Camber, them? Camber, yeah, uh, a couple months ago, yeah, and this uh, this uh, passing fall we had had Camber, yeah, out in Bellingham, love those guys, yeah. great, delicious coffee. And to me, I don't know, maybe I I just I was unaware or I was oblivious to it, but I had no idea that was 
this many roasters stateside. I mean, um, for years, um, a lot of uh, it's a company called Manhattan. I think they're roasting in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Um, Not to be confusing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, those names were always thrown around in specialty coffee as, oh, those guys over there are doing it the best. Yeah. But um, there's some, some, some roasters right here in the U.S. Have you had Big Face? I had Jimmy Butler on the show, basketball star. <sighs> he does Big Face. You know, uh, we... Um, uh, one, uh, a, a buddy of mine, Juan, just joined the team. I think this is first first week. I think he works directly with Jimmy Butler. I think that's like his go-to guy. Yeah. He'll like call him to do, do some work. I Full disclosure, I initially kind of backed away from it because I just thought it was some guy with money who yeah. can afford to do all these Thought things. the same. Yeah. The same. <laughs> but he is like the real deal, um, which is... Um, which is good because I think uh, going back to what the industry needs, I think the industry needs uh, more evangelists like that, people who are like really vocal about coffee not just being this commodified product that, you know, you can get on a corner. It's it's amazing. I'm going to link to that episode in the show notes are my conversation with Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler represents um, – a real coffee nerd and there's no (laughs) A-list, there's no B-list, there's no C-list celebrity that I know of who's that vocal about coffee. So yes, he's an athlete and you think athletes do things for weird reasons. But man, I think what he's doing is remarkable and more people need to talk about it that he actually is valuing coffee and and making it cool. Yeah, and you know, it's anytime someone lends their celebrity to something like this, it's it's a win-win. It really is. Where do you... Want to take drip? I mean, this question's big. We're wrapping up. I, I I love to know. Are you thinking expansion beyond New York? Are you thinking about dialing the the four locations you have? Yeah, I think um, <laughs> after COVID, um, we um, were pretty excited about the offers we were getting, um, and pretty much said yes to everything. Which is why we went from one to four shops in the span <laughs> of two years. Wow. Um, that said, that was done with <laughs> no infrastructure. It's just been me kind of, you know, like I mentioned before, just me keeping all the plates spinning. In the immediate future, I'd like to really just dial in, you know, <laughs> what hmm. we currently got working. Um, there's, there are some things in the works that I don't want to talk about now mm-hmm. only because they may or may not happen. But um, any expansion from this point would be almost at a glacial pace because it has to make business sense. It can't just be expansion for the sake of expansion. I think a lot of um, a lot of my peers who you know did have that kind of growth aren't around anymore because I think they were they were expanding for the wrong reasons. For you know, I don't want to speculate of what their reasons were, but I think if you're just growing for the sake of growing and not because you feel you have something to offer that no one else is offering. I think a lot of times your message gets muddled. Uh, Great uh, point. Yeah. I think it's it's re- really um, important to note that sometimes expansion isn't a good thing and sometimes no. you need to dial back. Yeah. Nigel, we asked all guests in the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to write this book, what would that book be? <laughs> Don't laugh, but it would probably be um, 
for the love of pasta, something weird like that. Shout, um, yeah, do it. I would totally get my Stanley Tucci on. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do need to broaden my cooking horizons, but I feel like I make pastas on the menu at home a, a lot more than you know, the family would probably <laughs> want it to be. Pasta's a, a yeah. beautiful thing, Nigel. Yeah. I literally, I just started actually making, like, making my own dough and making my own pasta, which is oh, a game changer. You're rolling out, yeah. like Nona style. You know, <laughs> nice. I mean, yeah, your your book was pretty inspiring. <laughs> yeah, after oh. Media, yeah. <laughs> oh, sweet. Thanks. That's kind of you. Yeah, we did feature some, some pasta in uh, Food IQ. Well, Nigel Price, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. No, thanks for the invitation. This is amazing. Well, I mean, the work you're doing, again, anytime you add a megaphone to these cortes, it's a good thing. Oh, well, yeah. I appreciate it, and I, I will continue to drink your amazing <laughs> coffees. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.